Okay, I have to tell you this one story before we begin preaching. Last week, if you were here, we preached on how to listen to a sermon. And if you remember, we walked through this passage in James and we said, you got to sort of clear away the junk and receive with meekness God's implanted word, which is able to save your souls, and you have to do what it says. So we were in GCM just talking through that passage, and one person said to me, I think I may have misunderstood your sermon. Uh, and she said, when I heard you say clear away the junk, I literally went home and I cleaned out my closet, okay? So she had cleared away all her junk. She put everything into suitcases. In fact, called an agency to come and give all her stuff to the poor. And she genuinely had cleared away all her junk, right? Now, I heard that and part of me wanted to quit preaching because I thought to myself, <laughs> you know, it, like what must it sound like on that end, right? I, I, I couldn't stop thinking of the peanuts teacher in that cartoon that just sounds like wah, 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 like that must be what it's like on your end when I preach. And then part of me felt like, isn't that the most wonderful response to the preaching of God's word? As best as she understood it, she knew I have to do what it says. And, and that's sort of the posture I so badly want for all of us in, in whatever ways that we get God's word, that we would not just be hearers of God's word, we would do what it says. So that's what I want to pray even that God, may that be the kind of posture we bring to your word, even this morning as we begin to walk through the gospel according to Mark. Okay, so let me pray for a moment, and then we'll consider this book together. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we pray now that your spirit might open our eyes to it, and our ears to hear it, and our hearts to feel and believe it, our minds to understand it, and our wills to be ready to obey it. We pray that in this you would draw us to Jesus Christ and today you would show us clearly who he is and you might stir in our hearts a fresh affection for him, knowing who he is and what he's done and wanting so badly to follow him with all our lives. Come do this, we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning what I want to do is I want to give you sort of an overview of the entire book of Mark. Okay, so that's sort of what we want to do. We're not going to dive into one section as much as just talk through the book as a whole. It's, it, it's sort of like this. If you wanted to see Philly, you could sort of see Philly sitting in the passenger seat of a car driving through its streets or in the window seat of a plane flying over it, right? And those two perspectives would give you two very different perspectives of Philly. If you were sitting in the passenger seat of a car, then you could drive through and you could see any one of Philly's 2,000 murals. You could see the rocky steps. You could roll down the windows and hear the sounds and smell the smells and see the sights. You could appreciate the finer details of Philly. But if you're sitting in the window seat of a plane, now you don't get the details, but what you do is you get sort of the, the entire big picture. You get how the city is laid out. You get a feel for the whole thing. And if you put these two perspectives together, now you've got a very robust, good feel of Philly. So that's what we want to do. Today, I want to sort of fly over the book so that you can see the whole thing before next week, Kevin will preach for us at sort of the street level and we'll get to see the sights and hear the smells and, and, and hear the sounds and smell the smells of what it was like to walk around with Jesus. Okay, so at a high level, if I were to try and summarize for you the message of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, I'd say to you, it's sort of answering three questions. The questions are, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should we respond to Jesus? 
Again, high level, not all the details, but at the highest level, I'd say what Mark is trying to get us to see is who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how we should respond. Now, before we get into the message of this book, let me just give you sort of a, a background for it so that you get a feel for the book as a whole. As you've noticed, we keep saying the gospel according to Mark. But one of the curious things as you read through these 16 chapters in the coming season together is you'll notice that Mark never sort of signs this biography. There's nowhere in Mark where you get his name. It's sort of a curious thing that we go, how do we know that Mark wrote this when there's nowhere in Mark where he sort of signs his name or identifies that he's the author of this biography of Jesus' life? Like in a, a painting, there's always that little corner where the author signs his name. You don't get that in Mark. In fact, the closest thing you get is this odd little story. In Mark chapter 14, there's this, scene, there's this scene where Jesus is getting arrested. And the scene is that all the disciples leave Jesus and they run away and flee away. And you get this odd little story of this young man that had decided to follow Jesus... They come to get Jesus, and he runs away. He's wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They grab the cloth, and he runs away naked. And some scholars go, that's Mark's sort of way of going, you know the guy running butt naked in the garden? That was um, me, right? So I don't know if that's true or not. I just thought that was hysterical. That's the one part we might go, well, maybe this is Mark. Uh, other than that, we, we don't really know much about that. So who was Mark and how do we know he wrote this biography of Jesus' life? Now Mark, if you were here when we were preaching through the, the letter to the Colossians, then you will somewhere in the back of your mind remember that we talked about Mark. When Paul was writing to the Colossians, if you remember he's got that section at the end of Colossians 4 when he's saying, hey, these are my teammates in ministry, this is Tychicus and Archippus and all these guys, and we said he also said, if Mark comes, make sure that you greet him. And when we talked about Mark, we said, remember, Paul had a partner in ministry named Barnabas, and Barnabas' first cousin was this man named Mark. And what we read in the book of Acts is that sort of when the going got tough, Mark got going, right? The, the story we remember is Paul and Barnabas were going from one place to another, telling people about Jesus, but when things got hard, Mark deserted them. He sort of went AWOL. And Paul and Barnabas had a significant split over Mark. And so you have this AWOL missionary, and what we find out is that somehow this deserter gets connected with Peter, the apostle Peter, the head of the disciples, Peter. It's almost like if anyone knew about deserting Jesus, denying Jesus, not following through with Jesus, it was Peter. You can almost hear the conversations as deserter Peter talks with deserter Mark, and they connect again around Jesus Christ. And this Peter takes this young AWOL missionary, Mark, under his wing, so much so that when Peter writes his own letter, 1 Peter, at the last chapter, chapter 5, he's signing off, and he says, by the way, Mark, my son, greets you. This AWOL missionary has come under Peter's wing, this elder disciple, the apostle himself, and has been under him. And so now that Peter is able to say, Mark, my disciple, greets you. And in fact, what history tells us is that Peter is Mark's source for his account of the gospel. That Peter's sort of in the background, in the words of Mark. 
We know that because real early in church history, the writings of the first Christians sort of just assumed and widely told everyone, this is the words of Mark, inspired or back behind that is the voice of Peter. Right? So, for example, in the second century, you've got this early church father named Justin Martyr. And he writes, and he's quoting this section of Mark. He quotes Mark 3.17. And when he says, here's where I found this, he describes it as, I found it in the memoirs of Peter. Did you hear that? that? That that's how he actually referred to the gospel according to Mark. He said, I'm quoting this section. This quote section comes to us from the memoirs of Peter. And, and, and I want you to hear this. That sort of makes sense. It sort of makes sense that this isn't made up because if you were going to make up the author of this account, you wouldn't have chosen Mark. For example, we get lots of these false gospels, these sort of made-up gospels. And whenever you get a fake gospel, they always put the title as some apostle. The gospel of Barnabas, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter. That makes sense. If you want someone to read your fake gospel, you assign it to some apostle. Nobody would have chosen Mark, a non-apostle, and more than that, someone with a shady ministry record. Somebody who was a AWOL missionary, a deserter. Nobody would have said, hey, here's what everyone believed. Mark wrote this gospel. And so we know the reason that it was believed by the early church and the first Christians was because everybody knew Mark's, Peter's disciple, wrote what Peter had told him. Here's what I want you to get. What you have in the account of Mark is essentially him writing down what he had heard Peter say over and over and over and over again. He had been around Peter, had heard Peter talk these stories over and over and over and over and over again, and he wrote down what he heard Peter say. It's sort of like this. This week, I had gone to a pastor's gathering, a church planter's gathering with, with Sibby. We were in a table, and we were told to introduce ourselves, and someone had heard about the story of St. Mark's Church giving us this six-acre property for free. And so they told me to recount the story. They told me, could you tell us that story? Now, I have said that story probably no less than a hundred times. So much so that in my sleep, three in the morning, I could tell it to you, and it would sound the same exact way. I've said it so many times. There was this older church, St. Mark's German Evangelical Reformed Church. They were 134 years old, and we moved in two miles away. I mean, I've, I've said it so many times. They took two votes, and by the end, unanimously, they gave us the whole property for free. That's how it goes. And I, and I thought to myself, as Sibby was sitting there, this brother has heard me say that no less than 20 to 50 times. And I thought to myself, if we have a run of 10 to 20 more years of ministry together, by 20 years from now, Sibby could write down word for word my account of how St. Mark's Church gave us this building. That's what Mark did with Peter. You can almost picture old Peter towards the end of his life going, Mark, have I told you about that time when Jesus fed the 5,000? Yes, Peter, you have said that story a thousand times, right? Or, or Mark, did I tell you, speaking of food, did I tell you that there was this one time, and you get these details, there was this crowd so big in the house, the disciples were hungry and couldn't eat. I mean, that detail has nothing to do with anything else in the gospel. You could almost just hear Peter's grumbling stomach going, I remember that day we couldn't eat because the crowds kept coming. Yes, Mark. Yes, Peter, you've, you've told us that story. Or, or have I told you that time when, and maybe he chuckled, when Jesus looked me in the face and said, shut up, Satan. Right? I kid you not. I, I told him, Jesus, I don't think you should die. He looked me in the face and said, you're acting like the devil. 
And then you imagine, maybe, maybe tears filled in his eyes as he said, Mark, have I told you about the time I denied him three times? How I swore to God I didn't even know him. And you can picture Mark going, yes, Peter, you have told us. See, when you're reading the words of Mark, I want you to hear that behind that you're listening to the voice of Peter. And so you can trust this account of Jesus' life because the gospel according to Mark comes from one of Jesus' disciples himself, a man who had been around Jesus and had communicated and written these things down. And so having learned from Mark, from Peter, here's what Mark wants you to know. He wants you to know who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and how we should respond. Here's the first. As an overall high-level message of what Mark wants to communicate, he wants you to know who Jesus is. Now, you need to know Mark doesn't waste any time in trying to communicate that. In fact, it's his opening line. If you've got a Bible, it's Mark 1, verse 1. Just the only verse I really want to read today. Mark 1, verse 1, and it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we're talking literally in his opening words. He wants you to know who Jesus is. And he gives them two titles here, right in the first verse. That Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God. You want to know who he is? He is the Christ and he is the Son of God. Consider that second one first. He's the Son of God. Now in the scriptures you need to know that Son of God was a term that had been used. Angels were referred to as the sons of God. Israel was called God's son. David was called the son of God. And so there's a sense in which almost Jesus, the son of David, is of course the son of God. But Mark wants you to know Jesus isn't just a son of God. He is the son of God. He is the son of God. So much so that when, when Jesus is getting baptized and this voice booms from heaven, the father says, this is my beloved, like my, my one and only. This is my boy. This is my beloved son. Son of God is used about eight times in the gospel according to Mark. And, and what's interesting is all the way until the end, it's almost spoken by just the people who know who Jesus is. In the gospel according to Mark, Son of God is used eight times. It's first said by the Father at the baptism. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Three times it's spoken by the demons. They're literally about to get kicked out by Jesus. And they go, what do you want to do with us, Jesus, Son of God? Then it's spoken again by the Father at this moment called the transfiguration. When Jesus sort of peels back his glory and lets them see who he is. Again this voice comes out. This is my Son. Listen to him. Jesus himself speaks it once in a parable, once while he's on trial. And it's not until literally chapter 15, the passage that Fred read for us, that a human finally confesses it. And who confesses it? Not a religious leader, not a Pharisee, not a scribe, not even a disciple. It's an idol-worshipping pagan Roman centurion who had just helped crucify Jesus who's the first human being in Mark's account to say, surely this was the Son of God. It's almost like Mark is saying, it's like the entire spiritual realm knows who Jesus is. The Father confesses it, and the Son confesses it. Heck, even the demons confess it. 
But it's not till chapter 15, till a Roman centurion who had nailed Jesus to the cross finally sees this was, in fact, the Son of God. See, Mark wants you to get, you may not get this all the way to the end, but he wants you to know when you are in the presence of Jesus, you are in the presence of God himself. This is not a son of God. This is the son of God. But he's not only the son of God. Mark's first verse was what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Jesus Christ. He's not just the son of God. He's also the Christ. Now, if you've been around Christianity at all, you've heard Jesus Christ so often, you might almost be tempted to think that's sort of his last name. Right? Like Ajay Thomas, Shainu Thomas, Binu Abraham, Jesus Christ. You should know that wasn't his last name. Christ was a title. When he was saying Jesus Christ, he was ascribing to Jesus this incredible title. He was saying this is the royal anointed one. This is the awaited one. This is, as the Old Testament would have called it, this is the Messiah. Messiah, this term that would have been, this is the one that God had promised to his people who would come, and this is the one that God's people had been waiting for. This is who this Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Now, part of what's going on in Mark is he's trying to get you, the reader, to see that in some ways, Jesus was less than what the people expected Messiah to be, and in some ways, Jesus was much more than what the people expected Messiah to be. Hear that. Part of the struggle and the tension in Mark's account of the gospel is that he's trying to say, in some ways, Jesus was much less than what the people expected when they heard Messiah. And in some ways, Jesus was much more. You see, Messiah was Israel's Messiah. This is Israel's rescuer, Israel's deliverer. And so what the people had assumed for thousands of years was that when Messiah comes, Oh, he's finally going to kick out the bad guys, right? Israel had been occupied for so long by, by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians and the Greeks and, and now the Romans. And when Messiah finally comes, the Gentiles are out, we're in, finally he's going to get rid of the bad guys. It's the kind of stuff we would now call political stuff, right? You're expecting this king to ride into the city overthrow the bad guys. Maybe if the sword needs to be used, the sword will be used. The Gentiles will be out, will be in. Israel had been pushed out of the world stage, will be restored. All of that stuff will happen when Messiah comes. So you can imagine, in some ways, what a letdown it was when Jesus didn't do any of that. When Jesus didn't do any of that. I mean, you have to almost sort of feel what that must have been like. I heard a, a sports commentator on sports radio as he was talking this week about the Eagles, and he called Chip Kelly. He said, Chip Kelly was such a false messiah. It was, it was interesting to me that that's the way he had described it. It was actually a perfect description. Why? Three years ago when that man came into this city, do you remember what we had hoped Right? We had planned the parade route down Broad Street. I mean, the title was coming. The Super Bowl was coming. This guy was unlike any other who had ever come. The smartest guy to ever come into the NFL. His first game, you remember, against the Redskins, those two quarters, we thought it was here. He had arrived. And now, I mean, all the hopes of this city dashed. Well, you take that small, tiny thing that Philly has felt, and you go, what would it have been like for a people to wait for a thousand years for this one person to come? 
and he was going to kick out the bad guys. They were planning the parade route when the Gentiles were out, and we were back in, and we were going to be at the top, and all of that would come when Messiah came. And can you imagine when Jesus not only doesn't kick out the Romans, but gets killed by the Romans? Can you imagine how they would have just said, here's another failed false Messiah? And Mark, his gospel comes to say, hold on. Hold on, because while Jesus didn't do what you thought Messiah would do, the real reason is because what you thought Messiah would do was wrong. Your expectations of what Messiah was was wrong. He did much less than what you thought, but he has done so much more than you could have ever dreamed. You see, one of the things you'll notice as you read through Mark's 16 chapters is that it's almost like Jesus goes out of his way to keep who he is a secret. Right? You'll read and you'll hear all the time Jesus goes, don't tell anyone who I am. Hey, hey, don't tell anyone who I am. And it's almost like, why is Jesus trying to keep who he is a secret? And part of the reason is he wants to define what Messiah means on his own terms. He wants to slowly begin to tell the disciples, I know there's a lot of buzz about what they think Messiah is. I need to show you what Messiah actually was. In fact, there's this term you're also going to see in Mark's gospel. Said about 16 times, he calls himself the Son of Man. 16 times, Son of Man, Son of Man. And it's this title used almost interchangeably with Messiah. Messiah is the Son of Man, the Son of Man is the Messiah. And without a long background, here's just what I'd say. When Jesus says Son of Man, he's reaching back into the Old Testament. And he's pulling out a title from there. In fact, one of the places you see it is there's this prophet named Daniel. He has this vision. And basically three things happen in his vision. There's this son of man who has authority. But there's these nations that come and oppress the son of man. But after his suffering, the son of man is vindicated in glory and all the nations worship him. And Jesus keeps borrowing this title from back in the day and saying, here's who I am. And guess what you see in Mark's gospel? Jesus has authority. In fact, in chapter 1, they go, who teaches like this? We've never seen anyone have authority like that. In chapter 2, they go, who has authority to forgive sins? Like Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. In chapter 3, they go, even the demons listen to him. Look at his authority. His authority is this theme throughout. He has authority. He's also going to suffer just like the Son of Man would. Three times he says, you're going to see the Son of Man. He's going to be crucified and mocked and killed. But also, Mark wants you to know, he's going to rise and be vindicated in glory. Jesus will say over and over again, you'll see the Son of Man come down in clouds in glory and in power. Daniel, what was going on? The Son of Man is, has authority. He's going to suffer. He's going to be vindicated. And Mark's gospel says, here's Jesus. He has authority. He's going to suffer. He's going to be vindicated. And Mark's way of saying, listen, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament had been talking about. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. That is God in the flesh. The Messiah awaited who had come with authority to suffer and to be vindicated in glory. What did Jesus come to do? Let me walk through these last two much quicker. What did he come to do? There's actually a few times where Mark explicitly tells us what Jesus came to do. In chapter 1, verse 24, you actually get it from the demons. 
The demons go, wait, why have you come? Have you come to destroy us? It's from the mouth of demons, but you get this picture as to why did Jesus come? Destroy the evil one. Cast out these demons. In chapter 1, verse 38, you'll see Jesus says, the, his disciples come to him and go, the crowds are looking for you. And he goes, listen, let's go to another town. I have to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. This is why I came here. He's come to preach. Chapter 2, verse 17, he gets into a sort of fist fight with the Pharisees. And he'll say, listen, I didn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Then in chapter 10, verse 45, he'll say, listen, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I came to kick out evil, announce God's kingdom, call sinners, and die as a ransom. This is why Jesus came. If I were to summarize that, he came to establish God's kingdom and to die for sinners. That's why he came. See, Mark is unique in that he doesn't have a lot of Jesus' teaching. You don't get a lot of Jesus' stories, his teaching, his parables. For example, Matthew's gospel has about 20 parables. Luke's gospel has about 25 parables. Mark's gospel has seven. It's not a lot of scenes of Jesus' teaching. Instead, what Mark does is a lot of Jesus' doing. Jesus always in action. Always you find the word, immediately he went here. Immediately he did that. Jesus always doing something. And what's he doing in Mark's account? He's feeding the poor. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's causing the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. Jesus always doing something. And here's what I want you to hear. It's not just random good stuff, random acts of kindness that Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing is the prophets had said that when Yahweh comes and establishes his kingdom, guess what's going to happen? The poor will hear good news, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. And so Mark is trying to show you when Jesus arrived, he did all the things the prophets said Yahweh would do when he came. He's establishing his kingdom. In his kingdom, there will be no blind men. In his kingdom, there will be no death. In his kingdom, there will be no who are dead. In his kingdom, there will be no sinners. And so what do you see Jesus doing? Causing the blind to see, and the lame to walk, and the deaf to hear, and sinners to be forgiven, so that Mark can shout to you, the kingdom of God has come. He's arrived. The king has arrived. Jesus has come with his crown on. And yet... What Mark wants you to know is more than anything he came to do, Jesus came to die. That's the twist. The Messiah has come not to wear a crown, but to wear a cross. The Messiah has come to die. The, the twist in Mark is the king you had been waiting for has come, but he hasn't come to kill the Romans. He's come to die at the hand of the Romans. He hasn't come to kill his enemies. He's come to almost save his enemies. The king has come to die. In fact, Jesus' death is in view way in the beginning of Mark. By chapter 3, Jesus gets into an argument with the Pharisees because he cures a man on the Sabbath, a big no-no for the religious folks. And by chapter 3, you read, and the Pharisees and the Herodians, who normally hated each other, begin to plot to destroy him. Would you take that in? By the time that some of the other gospel writers are just sort of finishing up Jesus' childhood, Mark already has the cross in view. 
By the time that Luke is just getting Jesus done being a 12-year-old, Mark already has Jesus' cross and his death in view. The cross sort of looms over the entire gospel according to Mark. Because this Jesus who has come, has come to die. And that's what Mark wants you to know. Jesus will say three times, this is why I came. I've come to suffer, I've come to die, I've come to die in the place of and for sinners. Right? So one of the, the big statements is the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why I've come. I've come to exchange my life for yours. I've come to ransom my life for yours. I've come to ransom you through my life. Right? That, that's why I've come. So the kingdom of God that Jesus had come to establish, it's not going to be for the religious elite. It's going to be for mess-ups and failures and screw-ups and sinners. This is why I've come. I've come to establish my kingdom and to bring not the faithful in, but the faithless, sinful people like you and me. This is who I've come to die for, to give my kingdom for. So then lastly, if this is who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Messiah, and this is why he's come to establish his kingdom and to die for sinners, how should we respond? How should we respond? When you read Mark's account, there's sort of three basic chunks of people, right? Again, high level, flying over, not details. Three chunks of people. There's the crowds who sort of hover around Jesus. There's those that just straight up oppose Jesus. And there's those that believe and follow Jesus. There's the crowds that hover around Jesus. There's the people who straight oppose him. And then there's some who believe and follow him. The crowds come around him. That happens in Mark all the time. The crowds are constantly around Jesus. I was talking this week with Shibu. We were taking our kids to basketball practice. And we were talking through the Powerball ticket, right? So we're, we're talking. I spent no less than about three hours that night trying to figure out, can a pastor play the Powerball, right? That was my topic of the night, right? And so we sort of dreamed for a little while of what would it be like to win a billion dollars? Now, when you're in the dreaming phase, you're incredibly generous. So, of course... I don't need anything more than a few million, because everyone needs a few million. But after that few million, I would just be giving away hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're thinking through that. I mean, how could I come to church having won a billion dollars? Well, you're all here, you poor people, right? So, so I, I think to myself, okay, what, what if we pay off everyone's mortgages and pay off their car loans, and, and that's one way that I could keep my millions, and you, you'd be blessed and help. But then we thought, what if word gets out that this church is paying off mortgages? Can you imagine? I mean, we are going to be a mega church overnight, right? You, you could imagine if, if Philly heard there's a church in Northeast Philly where mortgages are being paid off and cars are being bought, wouldn't you imagine by next Sunday this place would be flooded? And then wouldn't we have the hardest time knowing who's here for what? Who's here for Jesus and who's here for a mortgage? It'd be the hardest thing to try and imagine how do we differentiate between who's here for the stuff that they can get and who's here for Jesus himself. As you read through Mark's gospel, you find out it's like Jesus is a walking Powerball ticket. He's a walking lottery. If you're sick and you go near Jesus, you're going to get healed. If you're dead and you go near Jesus, you're going to get raised. I mean, if you're lame and you happen to be near Jesus, you're going to walk. 
And so no wonder the crowds are around Jesus wherever he is. And it's almost like Jesus has the hardest time pulling away from the crowd and getting his disciples away from the crowd to go, you've got to be different. I mean, how hard would it be to convince the crowds who would come to this church, actually, the gospel of Jesus is not about just what it can give you, but you're going to be called to give your life to it. How are you going to tell a city full of people that have come here to get a mortgage, actually, Jesus' call is for you to take up your cross and follow him? That's the struggle in, in the crowds of Mark. They're constantly around Jesus. They love to hover around him. And so Jesus has to pull his disciples away and say, listen, if you're really going to follow me, it's not because I feed 5,000 with bread. It's not just because I can make you walk. It's not just because I can heal your sickness. If you're going to follow me and be my disciple, Jesus will say things like, if anyone should be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. That literally I'm calling you to die to yourself if you're going to follow me. There's the crowds that hover around Jesus for what they can get, and Jesus has to pull apart. Are you here for what you can get from me, or are you here for me? Hear me, Seven Mile Road. Mark's account of the gospel asks you, why are you here? Because you could very well be a crowd member that's around Jesus and his church for all the stuff that this could get you. If I'm here long enough, then maybe this will mean good things for my life. It'll mean blessings to my account. It'll mean whatever it might mean. And Jesus wants to call you away from the crowds and say, there's lots of people that hover around me. Those aren't my disciples. Then there are the people who just straight oppose Jesus. And the irony is the people you would have imagined follow him don't. And the people you would have imagined don't follow him do. That's the irony in Mark's account of the gospel. The people you would imagine, I mean, the religious leaders of Israel, God's chosen people, and now Israel's Messiah has finally come. The royal son of David you've been waiting about, reading in your Bibles for all these years has finally come. God himself in the flesh, Yahweh, has come, and they kill him. And they kill him. They don't need a savior, thank you very much. They've got their rule keeping and their religion and their following and they have no need for Jesus and they're offended by him and they oppose him. And yet, what do you see? Who does go to him? The demon possessed go to him. The unclean go to him. The disabled go to him. The Gentiles go to him. A, a, a Roman centurion is the first one to say, surely this was the son of God. There's those who oppose him. And lastly, there are those who follow him. And in Mark's account of the gospel, you've got this band of disciples. And hear me. Mark paints them out to be like this bumbling bunch of the, the silliest bunch of men you could imagine. Mark, maybe it's, maybe it's Peter talking about what it was like to be around these 11 guys. Maybe it's Peter telling him his stories. But Mark does not flatter at all these disciples. They're constantly found not getting what Jesus is saying, misunderstanding, having arguments among themselves about who's going to be the greatest and who's going to sit on his right hand. I mean, they look like kids sometimes. I kid you not, as we were getting ready to preach through this, uh, Binu Sibi, Dennis, and I had spent an hour just reading Mark from beginning to end. At one point, we literally laughed out loud in reading the account of the disciples. There's this one scene where Jesus had fed the 4,000 with bread. 
So now they got plenty of bread left over. They get into a boat, and Jesus goes, I want you to be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples start whispering to one another, oh, shoot, we forgot to bring bread. You think he's angry about the bread? And it's like Jesus going, what are you talking about? Right? These, these kids that they're talking to each other, you, you think he's upset about the bread? Oh, why did you bring the bread? And Jesus wants to go, when are you going to finally understand? I mean, you, you get these scenes where there are these moments of brilliance followed by them acting like the devil. Right? Peter, one breath, you are the Christ. You can't make it to the end of the page before Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. Right? Literally, this moment of incredible spiritual clarity. You are the Christ. And then his advice to Jesus, listen, you shouldn't die. And Jesus has to say, you're acting like the devil. Can you imagine that? Having this incredible spiritual moment to be followed just moments later by a terrible fall. And do you know why Mark, I think, does that? Because it's almost like Mark saying, you know who else is like that? You. You're like that. Have you ever had a moment of incredible spiritual clarity and incredible spiritual experience and just later that day have a terrible fall? Have you ever had this incredible spiritual moment? Maybe you're in church, you've experienced Jesus, you heard his word, you're going to leave here, your life is going to be different. On your way home, you get into a terrible argument and say the worst things. That night, you watch porn again. You ever have an incredible spiritual moment where you're committed, you're all in, you're going to follow Jesus, only be followed just a few moments later by a horrible sin? Mark wants you to know that's what the disciples were like. And that's what you're like. It's, it's faithful and faithless. Believing and unbelieving. Committed and half-hearted full of faith and full of doubt, following him and deserting him, saint and sinner, all at the same time. That's what these disciples were like. And yet the wonderful news of Jesus is, and he welcomed them, and he wanted them, and he was going to work on them, and so it is with you. The invitation of Mark's account of the gospel is, you can be a disciple of Jesus. Are you faithful and faithless? Are you committed and half-hearted, believing and unbelieving, sinner and saint at the same time? Come to Jesus. That's what his group of disciples were like, and that's what you are like as well. And he'll take you. This is who Jesus is. Come to him. He is the Son of God, God in the flesh. He is the Christ, the Messiah, who has authority, who will suffer, who will be rising again and coming in vindicated glory and power. And he has come to establish his kingdom and to die for sinners. And today, don't just hover around him for what you can get from him. Come to him to get him. Don't oppose him. You need a savior. And come and follow him as a disciple. Let's pray together.